right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tony Arterburn. A little something different for the podcast feed. I was going through my archives earlier this week, and I came across the first article that I ever had published 10 years ago. And it's about the Iraq war. It's the 10th anniversary of the Iraq war. And I noticed in the media, there was a tiny bit of uh, coverage in the last couple of weeks on the 20th anniversary. I think I've talked about it on, on the show, but I wanted to bring this to your attention. It was my rebuttal. Again, my first article I ever had published in a few different outlets. And I'd watched the mainstream media talk about the Iraq war lessons learned all that they phoned it in. So I sat down that night and, uh, and wrote a personal perspective and I wanted to share it with all of you. And I hope that you'll get some value from it again. This is 10 years ago, 33 year old Tony, just starting out venturing into <laughs> venturing into politics, venturing into radio Entering the arena, so I will read you Remembering the Iraq War on its 10th Anniversary, a personal perspective. We shall not cease from exploration, and at the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. T.S. Eliot If war is hell, then politics is purgatory. Or so it seemed for this writer as I anxiously awaited the first strikes on military targets in Iraq from my apartment in Fayetteville, North Carolina, in March of 2003. Two days earlier, the president had given Saddam and his sons 48 hours to leave the country they had ruled since the time of my birth. With my gear packed and orders pending, I sat with the Fox News feed on mute, glancing back and forth between the giddy reporters and a biography of Harry Truman. My gut feelings did not have the intellectual capacity as yet to express what was unfolding before me. Even as I write this today, with the fog of war lifted and a decade of life lived in between, it is hard to channel the feelings of angst that I had or the history that was happening all around me, for we were a different America then, and so too am I a different man now. On that night of March 2003, I was 23 years old and newly married to a courageous fellow veteran of the Afghan war. She was wrongly sent away for training at the time, which left me alone, scared to death, and a very angry young man. Less than two months earlier, I had buried my best friend and brother-in-arms specialist David Escavich with honors at Arlington National Cemetery. David had died in his sleep of a, quote, Mysterious combat-related illness at the age of 25. My thoughts at the time were dark. The task of escorting his body had fallen to me, and it's a six-hour drive from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to Arlington, Virginia. Plenty of time for the smell of embalming fluid to permeate my Class A uniform, the thought of which to this day weakens my resolve not to cry. But a punctual Bush White House would not have me wait long. The countdown clock ran to zero. Soon reports of targets struck in Baghdad flowed into newsrooms of a media to whom war is a spectator sport. It was then that Press Secretary Ari Fleischer walked out to the White House press room to inform the world that 
the opening stages of the disarmament of the Iraqi regime has begun, a statement that did not allow for follow-up questions. A few days later, and on more than one occasion, Mr. Fleischer would refer to the war as Operation Iraqi Liberation, or OIL, oil, a gaffe that was promptly whitewashed from the White House. My youthful and naive hopes that a possible last-minute peace could be made were dashed and instantly replaced with a fighting resolve. I would make it home from this damn mess, I told myself. My company had been the first army unit on the ground in Afghanistan. I was a paratrooper and a warrior serving with the best soldiers in the U.S. military. I buried my feelings and locked them away. There was no time to look back, no time to cry. And so it came to pass in the spring of 2003 that the 108th Military Police Company Airborne Air Assault and I followed the most powerful army on earth 800 miles through the cradle of civilization to Mosul, Iraq, on which stands what is left of the ancient city of Nineveh. My time in Iraq was one of both personal growth and regression. I read deeply, and I learned the limitations of my temper, aggression, and abilities in the face of danger. I am alive today because the bravest and most noble people I will ever know were watching out for me. Even if I did not like you then, may I say with the deepest sincerity, I love you now. You are and will forever be my brothers and sisters. It would be improper on this solemn occasion to recount the cost in blood and treasure or the impact the Iraq war had on countless families and the strength of our republic. For as the philosopher Nietzsche said, even the bravest among us rarely has the courage to face what they already know. With so much left to say, I am loath to close. The feeling starts to grip me that each day I lived after that tumultuous spring of 2003 is a gift. As my mind wanders, I am transported to that time, and for a fleeting moment, I become that frightened and angry young man. I look to the television. It is silent, and no pictures of war flash across the screen. I scan the room for my gear, but the duffel bag has long since been turned in, and the weapons are safe in an armory far away. My war is over. I immediately recall the words of Anthony Swafford in his memoir, Jarhead, about his experience as a Marine in the first Gulf War. A story. A man fires his rifle for many years, and he goes to war. And afterwards, he turns the rifle in at the armory, and he believes he's finished with the rifle. But no matter what else he might do with his hands, love a woman, build a house, change his son's diaper, his hands remember the rifle. We are still in the desert. Thank you for listening. Take care of each other. End of transmission. Life is a continuous confrontation with forks in the road. One is good, one is bad. And you could always wander completely off the road altogether and become lost. Totally and completely lost. If you take the wrong fork at one of these junctions, there is always the opportunity at the next fork to get back on track. But it is a constant battle within ourselves. You see, 
I have studied this concept for many, many years, and I have to tell you that if there is a real devil, like Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. I'm not telling you that there's no such thing as Satan or Lucifer. I'm telling you this. If there really is a devil, that devil exists in the hearts and minds of men and nowhere else. Nowhere else. For if you take man out of the equation, evil ceases to exist. And there is left only the laws of the universe and the balance of nature. Put man in the equation and before long evil will rear its ugly head and present itself to the world. The evil is within man and that is why it was called the fall. The devil never made anyone do it. If you do it, you did it yourself because you fell into temptation. For until man once again confronts the real nature of his own condition and of the world around him and accepts full responsibility for his actions without blaming anyone else or any devil, until then we will always be a puppet on the end of someone else's string. And ladies and gentlemen, when that someone pulls that string, we will dance.